0: Open your Bible, if you would, to Revelation, the last book in the Bible. There is a Bible near you in the pew if you don't have one with you, and you will need it uh, because the message will uh, not make any sense at all without it. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, is our text for the night. Revelation 3, 7 to 13. Listen and follow as I read. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to become about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth i am coming quickly hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown he who overcomes i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god and he will not go out from it anymore And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We come to the sixth of the letters to the seven churches. These churches are literal, real congregations in cities, in provinces of Asia during the latter part of the first century A.D. They were real people with real needs, real problems, real situations. But it is also very clear to me, at least it is my belief, that each of these seven letters is also representative of a period of the history of Christianity. The seven taken together form a panorama of the uh, history of the church and the conditions and the situations that the church has faced during her history. The last three, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, exist concurrently from the middle 1700s until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the city of Philadelphia uh, means the name and every name of these cities has been significant and so is this. The name of the city means to love the brother, the city of brotherly love. But it was not named for that reason. It was rather named for a rich and powerful man named Philadelphus. The city of Philadelphia in Asia is roughly 30 miles southeast of her sister city of Sardis. The soil in Philadelphia and the surrounding areas was very rich and Philadelphia was famous for growing grapes and famous for making wines around the ancient world. And so it is not much of a surprise That the city of Philadelphia adopted as their patron god the god Bacchus, the god of wine. It is also not surprising that in their practice of the worship of Bacchus, their most chronic social problem was drunkenness in the city of Philadelphia. The city was leveled to the ground by an earthquake, the same one in AD 17 that destroyed the city of Sardis. It was rebuilt by that one of the Roman emperors who was a builder and not a destroyer, the emperor Tiberius, and was dedicated largely to not only the worship of Bacchus, but to emperor worship for that reason. This letter is the second of the seven that contains no word of complaint. The other was to the suffering church, the city of Smyrna. Here there is only a commendation and a promise of preservation from a serious time of trial that is to come. The church in Philadelphia was not a perfect church, but it was a church characterized by love. And I do wish I could find out who said it so I could give credit. And you probably wish that I would quit saying it, but it bears repeating. No church is perfect. And if you are looking for a perfect church, this isn't it. But if, by some strange chance, you ever find it, don't join it, you'll ruin it. There are no perfect churches because they are all made up of imperfect people. So the church in Philadelphia represents the true church, the few among the many, the true among the false, the believers among the professors here at the end of Christian history. The period of Philadelphia begins about the time of the Great Awakening in the middle 1700s and continues until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Church of Sardis, the Protestant Church in the scope of uh, the sweep of history that we see here, came out of the institutional church, the church at Thyatira, because of its apostasy. And in like manner, because of the deadness and the coldness and the formalism that had come over the 200 years following the Protestant Reformation, the Philadelphia church comes out of the Sardis church. It represents a return to first principles. It represents what the Spirit called the church at Ephesus to do to come back to the Word of God, to put loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ in a place of priority, to be loyal to Him above loyalty to any tradition. And this passage, I believe, also teaches very plainly that the church, the true church, will be removed from the earth before the period that we have come to call the Great Tribulation. The picture of Christ that we see speaking to Philadelphia is one who has all saints, all sinners, and all situations under his control. It is a letter of divine initiative and a divine invitation to follow him. So look with me at these verses and notice several things. First of all, in verse 7, The picture of the Lord Jesus that we have in this letter is the picture that I have called the true opener. He who is holy, who is true, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says. This is almost a direct quotation. From Isaiah 22:22, a prophecy of a time when the Lord would put on the shoulder of his chosen one a, the key of David that he would have absolute power to open and to shut as he chose and no one could countermand or counteract what he did. His character is seen. He is holy and true. His position is seen for the key of David is a clear symbol of the authority of the rightful heir to the throne of David. He is right in his character for he is holy. He is right in his conduct for he is true. And it is his character that gives him the right to be in the position. He declares both his ability and his activity. He is no figurehead. He has the position, the key of David. But he also has the activity. He is an executive that executes his responsibility. The key of David, by law, by lineage, and by the sovereign will of Almighty God, he is sitting on that throne forever. He is the keeper of all of the keys. He has the kingdom of God the key to the kingdom of God he has the key to God's presence and when we come to him in prayer he opens that presence to us he has the key to eternal life and when we come to him for salvation he opens the door to eternal life he has the key to truth and when we come to his word he through his Holy Spirit opens the truth to our understanding He has the keys of heaven, of death, and hell. It is a picture consistent with the entire Bible that shows us a God who possesses all power, period. A totally sovereign God. He has David's throne, but he clearly and plainly is one greater than David. He opens... And no one can shut. He shuts and no one can open. Nothing can prevent the performance of His purposes. Now it is not my purpose tonight to discuss the sovereignty of God. But I will tell you plainly, pointedly, and simply, you will never know true peace until you decide that God is sovereign and He can do anything He wants to do. And He always knows best, even when we do not understand. The God who is at the mercy of the effectiveness of our prayers is not the God of the Bible. The God who has to wait until we ask Him to perform His purpose through us is not the God of the Bible. He is the God that we see walking among the candlesticks who possesses all power. And then notice in verse 8, He is the true opener. Here is the true opening. He says to them, Behold, and we are told to behold and behave. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name." Here is a beautiful picture. Our weakness need not be a hindrance to God's purposes being accomplished through us. God holds us accountable not for what we cannot do, but for what we can do, and He gives His rewards based on our faithfulness to opportunity. It is a beautiful picture. He opened the door and they walked through it. They had little power, but a little power was enough because they were true to Him. They were neither great nor strong, but they were obedient and they followed Him. His Word, by the way, is not best kept by defending its truth in debate. His word is best kept by obeying His word. He says, They have kept His name. You have kept my word, you have not denied my name. I like what Theodore Epp, the late founder of Back to the Bible, said about this. Satan corrupts the Word. Critics subtract from the Word. Some large sections of organized Christianity add to the Word. The liberal supplants the Word with his own ideas. Much of Protestantism neglects the Word. The world rejects the Word. But the true child of God, on the other hand, loves it. He meditates upon it, all of it. He reads it, desires it, studies it, treasures it, obeys it, and defends it if necessary. This is the minority group that the Lord is speaking to in the letter to Philadelphia. Philadelphia Christians flourish in the shade regardless of how the world reacts and responds. Elijah, the great prophet who defended God's honor on Mount Carmel with such marvelous success, went off and hid in a cave and prayed to die. And he said, Oh Lord, I'm the only one. And the Lord said, Give me a break. I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know, we don't know who they were, but God knew. They were anonymous. They were insignificant. Nobody knew who they were, but God knew. And they are as valuable in His sight as was Elijah. It may take courage to take a stand, but the strength necessary to endure and to stand is His strength. And then notice in verses 9 and 10, here is the true opposition. One of the things I have learned in recent years is that we very definitely need to try and remember who the enemy is. And the enemy is very seldom in our camp. The enemy is very seldom our brother or our sister in the Lord. It is a false premise that we have to agree on everything to get along and to serve God that is a false premise it's a terrible idea and it didn't originate with God we must stand for what we believe we must never flex where the Bible does not flex but that does not mean that we make enemies out of everyone who does not agree the true opposition the promise here is that the enemies will be defeated and that the true Christians will be honored. He will take care of them, he says. You continue to love them, I'll take care of them. We are not to repay what is done to us in like kind because repayment belongs to the Lord. That is his business. I like what Havner said. Error is always in a hurry, but God's man can afford to await the vindication of time. And if he is not vindicated in his own lifetime, eternity will settle the score. And indeed that has been the case. It has been true in Christianity repeatedly that people who died rejected and thrown out of the church, forgotten and despised, have come in time to see. We have come in time to see their greatness and their power and their strength. He promises deliverance. I believe that the time of tribulation referred to here is what we have come to call the great tribulation. A time when the entire planet will be rocked by trauma that we cannot imagine. That has never happened and it will only happen once. It is very popular in this post-Christian era of the United States where one of the favorite spectator sports is Christian bashing to depict Christians who believe what the Bible says about the end of time as bringing in a time of nuclear war because we think it's all going to end with blowing up. Well, that's a caricature and it's not true because the book of Revelation tells us What is going to happen? It doesn't tell us the why. It is in symbolic languages and symbolic figures that we cannot understand. But this much is clear. No weak or frightened leader with his finger on the button is going to bring down the curtain on this era. God has reserved the end of the age for himself. And when it's over, It will be by the word of His mouth and not by thermonuclear weapons. The promise that He makes to the Philadelphia Christians could not be fulfilled without a rapture of the church before the tribulation because He promises to keep them out of it. Not to hold them in it, but to keep them out of it. Here is the true opposition. Remember who the enemy is. And then notice in verses 11 to 13, here is the true opportunity. One day there will be a crowning, but the crowning is not for today. The conflict is for today. But the crowning will come. The true opportunity. He says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. It is interesting that these same words are spoken to Sardis, but spoken to Sardis, they are a threat. Spoken to Philadelphia, they are a promise that he will help them. Walter Scott, one of the uh, most insightful writers on the book of Revelation, says this about the Philadelphia Christian. An overcomer in Philadelphia is one who, though in weakness, yet holds on. His progress is not marked by great achievements, but he struggles on. The deepening conflict strengthens his faith and leads to increasing faithfulness. He holds fast with a tight grip to Christ's word, Christ's name, Christ's patience, and His coming. Life itself may be surrendered, but not the things which form the crown of His testimony. The weakness of earth will be exchanged for the power of heaven. It is indeed a marvelous promise that He has made us. It is possible, indicated as the Lord said, that we can lose our reward But we are not saved because of our righteousness. We do not remain saved because of our righteousness or our faithfulness. We are saved in the first place by the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood will never lose its power. The crown is our reward. You can lose the crown, you cannot lose the life. They possessed His word. They possessed His name. They possessed His patience. They held the promise of His coming. Death, desertion, compromise may thin the ranks, but we must keep on keeping on. We must not surrender one iota of God's truth or His purity or His will for our lives. We may be weak, but we can endure by His power. There is a very beautiful picture in verse 12. He says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. In 1 Kings chapter 7, When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, there were two great pillars, huge pillars, very solid and very strong. And he named one of them Boaz and the other Jachin. Boaz means strength. Jachin means established. And the Lord Jesus says to the Philadelphia Christians, By my strength, I will establish you as a pillar of the house of my God. His name is on us. In these verses, in verse 12, five times He connects us with Himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me happy. Five times He connects us directly with Him. I will make Him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. The church, any church, and yes, this church, always must... It's not optional. We must stand ready to enter every door He opens. We must stand ready for it. Now make no mistake, and let me say it one more time, the accomplishments of the eternal purposes of a sovereign God do not depend on us, but that sovereign God created us for the purpose of serving Him. If We don't do what God wants us to do. He will raise up someone else who will. But we will have missed the only excuse we have for being alive. It is very much, it reminds me at least, of the young Jewish queen Esther who finally out of fear of her life as she prayed and fasted decided that she would go before the king at peril of her life to beg for the lives of her people. Her uncle, a wise man, Mordecai, said to her, If you don't do it, God will raise up deliverance from somewhere else. But who knows? But that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Never before in history Have there been so many open doors to the gospel as there are today? And we are in a marvelous position in that we, though we must and we should be a part of reaching the world, the world is here. The world is here. By the most conservative estimate, there are at least 600,000 people on this island that don't know Jesus Christ. It is terrible, the highest heresy, not to walk through the open doors. The test is our faithfulness to opportunity. G. Campbell Morgan said this, Alas, that we have too often allowed things essential to be neglected while we have been dealing with things of little or no importance. Back to the Word, back to the name. Then the church will be what God intends she should be. May we pray. Gracious God our Father, I thank you so much that you have given us your name, your Word, that our little power is sufficient as we obey and follow you. And I thank you that you have placed us before the open door. May we, by your grace for your glory, according to your will and in your power, walk through every door that you open so that we may know what it is to realize in our lives the reason You've made us. Do with us as You please to the undying and uncreated glory of the Lord Christ. For I pray in His name. Amen. We sang as a hymn of commitment during this time of invitation. I have decided to follow Jesus. It is hymn 191. I do not know your heart or your need, but I invite you to the sovereign Lord who shed His blood that you might live forever with Him. The church will not save you. An organization, a commitment of time will not save you. The blood of Jesus Christ will save you as you kneel at the foot of His cross and beg mercy from Him. I invite you to join this church if God would lead you if God would have you invest your life in service here, I invite you to kneel and pray, or by all means, because there is no worship without response, I invite you where you are that you respond to His Holy Spirit. Do what He demands. Do it now. Do it quickly as we stand.